Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. We have just started this long journey to Easter. And last week, we gathered on Ash Wednesday to remind ourselves of our mortality, to remember that resurrection begins with a journey through death. And that's sort of a sober way to begin the movement towards celebration, but it's also really important, isn't it? To recognize that the story of God encompasses all of our experiences as human beings, all of our hurts, but also our deepest joys. And so that's the journey that's ahead of us. That's why I'm wearing purple today. That's where we are headed, and that's why we're starting a new series. So what's our path forward? Well, every year, as we lay out the journal, we look at a number of different priorities for the year. But during Lent each year, we often try to find a way to put our focus and our attention directly onto the story of Jesus. Now, last year, for example, We followed the travel narratives in Luke as he charts Jesus' physical journey as he walks toward Jerusalem. This year, we've done something similar again, but we're gonna trace a particular motif that runs through the Gospel of John. John is an interesting gospel among the four that we have in our Bible. Uh, We have Matthew and Mark and Luke, and we often call these the synoptics. Uh, That's a Greek compound word, and it just means that they see together. And we use that because these writers often rely on each other for their stories. Matthew and, Mark, or Matthew and Luke clearly are borrowing stories from Mark, which is probably the earliest gospel. John is just different, though. We've talked about this before, but it's important. John is written much later than the other gospels, probably near the end of the first century. What it means is that the fourth gospel is not so much recounting the story of Jesus, the way that Mark does, for example, but this gospel is reflecting back on the story of Jesus. I like to think of John as sort of a second generation text, someone who has grown up in the community that's been shaped by Jesus, now looking back on what it all means. Not as concerned with what happened as much as what it all meant. And one of the really unique ways that the author of John does this is through a motif that we want to look at on our way toward Easter. A series of stories that he identifies as signs of things to come. See, throughout the Gospel of John, there are these seven miracles that point toward resurrection. Hints of what the author imagines Jesus' kingdom to be about and markers of what the world could be like transformed into this new imagination of God. And so over the five Sundays of Lent, through Palm Sunday and Good Friday, we are gonna look at those seven signs in John. And then on Easter, of course, we will celebrate the new creation of resurrection. Today, however, we have the first sign, one of my favorites, Jesus turning water into wine. Before that, let's pray. God who is always ahead of us, both in our pain and in our celebration, inviting us forward with courage and with hope. We ask that you would be near to us today in whatever fragile state we have entered this room. We ask that your spirit of comfort be gentle and close, reminding us of your presence with us in all of the moments of our lives. 
Might we remember today both our constant need of you, but also the implication that that brings, our dependence on each other as well. Where we can, might we become a source of encouragement and strength for each other. Might we help each other to carry the burden of this season together. And in that, might even our lives become a sign of things to come. A world infused with peace that encompasses more than just the laying down of weapons, but also the healing of our wounds and the space to be honest and the freedom to smile without expectation, but only with deep joy. May your peace that passes understanding take shape, not just as extraordinary calm today, but also as justice for all. May our lives be signs of this peace to come. In the strong name of the risen Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay, signs of things to come. Today, we're going to celebrate that first sign, water into wine. But on the agenda today is apothic red, familial tales, stone jars, and sacred celebrations. But let's start by diving straight in. And we're gonna read this story from John 2, and I'm gonna start at verse one, I'm gonna read all the way through to verse 11, where it says this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. But his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw out some water and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master tasted the water that had been turned into wine, And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So he called to the bridegroom and asked, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first sign through which he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. All right, great story, right? I mean, who doesn't love a Jesus that one, keeps the party going, and two, does that using the good stuff? I mean, no apothic red nonsense here going on. And by the way, if you really like apothic red, that's fine. I am just snooty, so that's on me. Although, I bet that Jesus agrees with me, and I can proof text that here in John 2. I bet he likes exactly the same wine that I do. However, this is still a pretty interesting story particularly when John tells us that he thinks this right here, all of this wine, is the first sign of what is to come. So let's dig into this a bit and see what we can find today. Now, intriguingly, our story starts almost like it's in the middle of a thought, doesn't it? On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. We have no context for this. On the third day of what? We have no idea. If you go back to John 1, we get a story about John the Baptist. And then it says in verse 29 that the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. 
And then in verse 35, it says, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And then in verse 43, it says, on the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And then in the start of chapter two, it says, on the third day, there was a wedding. So it's possible we're just missing a few days here in the narrative because these days just don't really add up. I don't know what day we're on now, six or seven, who knows? Some scholars think that the three days are symbolic that because this is the first sign that points to resurrection, the three days, well, maybe they point us to the three days in the tomb. Maybe, that seems a bit of a stretch, and it's certainly pretty speculative, though. There is, however, an interaction at the end of John 1 that might shed some light on this. A man named Nathaniel comes to Jesus and declares his trust in Jesus, and Jesus says, that's great, but hold on to your hat, for you will see even greater things than this. Now, we know from John 21, at the end of the gospel, that Nathanael was indeed from Cana in Galilee. And so maybe he was at this wedding, and maybe that's where the reference comes from. The wedding took place three days after Jesus promised to Nathanael. Of course, we don't know for sure. That's both the beauty and sometimes the frustration of biblical interpretation. Sometimes there is just so much room for speculation when we read but I do like this as a possibility because what it says to me is that even something as important as a sign of the resurrection started as a personal encounter. It came about in response to a conversation. It was the result of an expression of trust in Jesus. In fact, Maybe the only reason we have this story, maybe the only reason we know it is because Nathan recognized this for what it was a sign that his faith was not misplaced and maybe he told this story far and wide and maybe that story made its way all the way to John. And over time, that story, as it was passed and it was shared among the community, it became a sign for all of us, but first it was a sign for one person, Nathaniel. And I think this kind of thing happens a lot more than we realize. Like I know there are moments in my life when small things remind me of why I choose to trust in God. Um, there are days when the truth is I don't believe. It's Lent, it's okay to say that even if you're a pastor. But it's those days when I don't believe that I choose instead to trust. And those small moments, those signs that remind me that my trust is not misplaced, it's when I share those moments with others delicately and appropriately but it's when I invite you into my story that my signs become your signs and vice versa. And maybe that's a bit of what's happening here, which I just really love. Nathaniel's story became John's story, becomes our story because that's how faith and community work. Even still though, we don't have much context here. We don't know who the lucky couple are. We don't know why Jesus and his mom and his disciples were invited to the party. But we do know, however, that the party runs out of wine. And maybe this was just bad planning. Uh, maybe more guests showed up than expected. Maybe Jesus had more disciples than they thought. Maybe the crowd was just more ready to celebrate than anyone had anticipated. Either way, the wine runs out and Mary finds out. And so she asks Jesus to intervene. And he gives this sort of curt reply, woman, why do you involve me? And that might sound harsh to our ears. If I was referred to my mom or my partner as woman, that would not go over well, I can tell you that. 
This is not, however, how this term gunai uh, implies tone here in Greek. Now, this was a common term of endearment or actually respect in Greek. And actually, I like the way that the First Nations version has translated this section. It says, so the mother of creator sets free. That's the name for Jesus that this translation uses. The mother of creator sets free, said to him, son, they have no more wine. Honored woman, he said to her. Why are you telling me this? Is this our concern? It is not yet my time to show who I am. But his mother turned to the helpers and said, do whatever he needs. And I really like that. First, because it actually does a better job of interpreting the scene. Honored woman is not as technically correct, but it is closer to the spirit of what's actually happening here in the Greek, how the term gunai would have been used. Second though, I love the way that this captures the mother-son dynamic in the scene. Uh, Jesus asks Mary to intervene. He says, mom, don't get me involved in this. This isn't our issue. But Mary turns to the helpers instead and says, let's get this done. I kind of picture Mary here, keeping eye contact with Jesus the whole time as she beckons to the helpers and says, help him out. Either way, this sign reads kind of stiff to me in English, but in Greek, it just feels a lot more playful than that. Maybe more familial, if that makes sense. And I think that might actually be important. There are times when it's really easy to start thinking of Jesus as a genie. We ask for things, he grants them. And there are ways of praying that presume upon Jesus in a very transactional, unrelational kind of way. This moment feels perhaps like a bit of a counterpoint to all of that. Sometimes we ask and sometimes Jesus says no and sometimes we ask again and sometimes Jesus relents. And I know that is not a very satisfying theology of prayer, but maybe that's the point. The prayer is less a transaction where we say the right words and we get the right outcomes and more like a family encounter with sideways glances and inside jokes. And I think what I take from this is a reminder to treat my prayer more like a conversation with my mom and less like a contract to employ. Regardless, now we get to the heart of this scene. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Now, 20 or 30 gallons times six stone jars means we are talking about up to about 180 gallons, or for us Canadians, 680 liters, or perhaps a more useful comparative here. That's about 900 bottles of wine. And I have no idea how many guests were at this party, but this is, shall we say, a lot to drink. Especially considering that this was already round two, that the guests had already finished off everything the host had expected them to drink. And in fact, John goes out of his way to mention that the helpers were asked to fill the jars to their brims, or literally, as far as their upward edge. So, this is wine overflowing. It probably sloshed about and splashed on the ground, even as they tried to draw a sip for the host to taste. But not only that, it was good wine, the best wine to boot. And John says this, this massive overflowing quantity of really good wine meant to keep a party going long into the night that this was the first sign of things to come. 
Except, I'm not actually sure the wine is the point. Now, before the sommeliers storm the stage, let me explain. There's this really interesting motif in John. Water, where it comes from, is a really big deal. In the next chapter, uh, Jesus will talk about needing to be baptized in both water and spirit to enter the kingdom. In chapter four, Jesus will meet a Samaritan woman at a well and talk to her about the gift of living water. In chapter five, Jesus will heal a man at the pool of Bethesda, a man who hopes that the waters can heal him. And in chapter six, Jesus will walk on water. You get the idea. You would expect that in a story about this much water and this much wine, that the source of that water would have some kind of attention. But instead, it's actually the vessels These six stone jars that seem to really capture John's focus. So what's going on there? Jars used for ceremonial washing. Is this for doing the dishes? Well, actually sort of, but also not really. Uh, These were used for cleansing dishes, but they were largely used for cleansing your hands and maybe even sometimes for cleansing your feet. And this idea of cleansing, this is a category that can be tough for us to get our heads around sometimes. Uh, We've probably all heard about the idea of something being clean and unclean in Judaism or perhaps in Islam. This does not necessarily mean dirty or bad. In English, uh, we often associate a value judgment with language like clean and unclean. That's not necessarily what's going on in Judaism. My son has a really good friend who is Muslim and they were comparing diets one day at school. My son is a vegetarian and he found out that his friend also does not eat pig and he was very excited about this. But he came home one day and he said to me, Dad, you know how we're vegetarian? Well, it's a good thing we don't eat pigs because my friend told me that they are dirty. Now, I knew who he was talking about. So I clarified exactly what did your friend say here? And then we had a conversation about unclean in the religious sense and dirty in the hygienic sense. And now pigs are actually quite clean animals. We just don't eat them in our house the same way his friend doesn't for religious reasons. And by the way, enjoy your bacon. Just keep your memes to yourself. I've already seen them all. I know what I'm missing. It's fine. I'm kidding. Just send me whatever you want. In Judaism, though, a lot of things could make you ritually or ceremonially unclean. If you touched a grave, for example, or if you had touched blood, if you were a woman who was menstruating, if you had even walked across certain lands, these things could render you ceremonially unclean. That did not mean dirty or bad, though. And there were rituals like a mikvah that would rectify that and cleanse you, but unclean wasn't bad. It wasn't like unclean separated you from God's love and cleansing brought you back into God's good graces. In fact, in Judaism, it was expected that you would become unclean regularly just by going about your daily business and that you would then cleanse yourself regularly to remind yourself of your connection and your commitment to God. That's what the rituals were meant for. Not good and bad, but rhythms of commitment. It's actually quite beautiful. And misunderstandings of these practices have been caricatured in far too many Christian sermons, and that's to our shame because we haven't learned and listened to our Jewish neighbors. But along with more elaborate ceremonies like a mikvah or a baptism, Jewish people would also often ceremonially wash their hands after something like coming home from the market or before enjoying a meal. 
Now, that does seem to be a bit of practical hygiene and religious observation combined together, but that's what these six stone jars would have been primarily used for at the entrance to a party. A ceremonial, religious, ritual cleansing that also had a very practical hygiene element to it. And in fact, John points out that they were made of stone precisely because stone, as a non-porous material, was protected from becoming ceremonially unclean. It was part of the Jewish teaching. That's why you would use these types of jars specifically to wash your hands or to wash your dishes. Now, as with any ritual, it was always possible for the meaning to be swallowed up by the practice, right? That Jesus is quite critical of his fellow Pharisees that went through the motions and lost sight of the purpose. In Matthew 23, he says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you act like hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are still full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind teacher, first clean the inside, then the outside will be clean as well. Basically, he's saying the ritual is meant to help us remind us to keep our hearts pure. But if we don't do that, what's the point of the ritual? This right here is just good old pharisaical teaching that any teacher of the law would have agreed with. Jesus is just calling out his contemporaries for not following through on the intent of the law. All this to say, when Jesus arrived at this party, He would have, in all likelihood, drawn water from these same six stone jars, washed his hands, and then entered the celebration just like any other Jewish guest. Except that when Jesus is asked with some help with the wine, he chooses these same six stone jars, and that's not just a coincidence. Remember, the whole reason that Mary has approached Jesus is because all the wine has run out in the first place. That means there are literally empty wineskins lying all over the place just waiting for their miracle. If he had wanted to, he could have kept the party going in a far less conspicuous manner. Instead, he chooses intentionally these jars, this symbol as the sign through which he would make himself known. Think about that. Jesus takes a symbol of our personal piety. How those who knew God reminded themselves of God's quiet presence with them daily. How they set themselves apart in connection to the vine, trusting that it would help them become better persons in their lives and Jesus transforms that ritual into a ruckus party that shook the neighborhood late into the night. And for John, I think, The symbolism of that moment, the sign was quite stark. No longer are we reminding ourselves of God's presence with us, but now God is declaring divine goodness among us. God is celebrating divine generosity around us. God is taking it upon God's self to turn our piety into God's party. And at this moment, this was no longer just the celebration of a random wedding in Cana of Galilee. This was no longer just a promise to Nathaniel that he would see greater things. This was now the reminder that every wedding, 
and every party and every over-the-top moment of unadulterated, unconstrained joy, all of these are now signs of everything that is to come. Because Jesus is saying that families united and neighbors invited, outsiders welcome with more than enough to go around for anyone who happens by, that itself is the story of God and every time we enact that, we point toward what is to come. One of my favorite quotes from one of my favorite authors, one that I have read here before, comes from Robert Farrar Capon who writes this. What we are watching for is a party. But that party is not just down the street making up its mind when it's going to come to us. It is already hiding in our basement, banging on the steam pipes and laughing its way up the cellar stairs. The unknown day and hour of its final bursting into the kitchen and roistering through the whole house is not dreadful. It is all part of the divine lark of grace. Because God is not our stuffy relative come to see whether the wedding present china is chipped. God is the funny old neighbor with a salami under one arm and a bottle of wine under the other and we do indeed need to watch for God's arrival but only because it would be such a pity to miss out on this much fun. That's what the sign is about. This is Jesus reassuring all of us that our rituals are not a waste that our attempts to be kind are not overlooked, that every time we commit ourselves to the good, trusting that God will bring that story to completion, that in itself is an image of the world made right in joyful celebration. And perhaps right now, at this moment in history, just as it was in Jesus' day, that hope feels very far off. But the point of the sign, especially as we begin our movement toward the cross, is not to deny all of that hurt or to ignore what is happening in the world or even in your life right now. The point of the sign is to remind us to hold tight to the ritual of celebration and joy. To trust that even in the moments where we struggle to believe, celebration is blessed and gladness is holy and that when we make sacred our parties, we can find the strength to return from them, committed even more to the work of justice that the world so deeply needs. And so as we begin our movement together toward both the darkness of the cross and the light and joy of the resurrection. Might we all remember somehow that every moment of joy that breaks in anywhere in our lives, this is a sign of things to come. And that when we learn how to dance and celebrate and drink late into the night, we can be strengthened for the work of healing the world around us. Let's pray. God, for all the ways that you show up in all of our lives, reminding us that you are present and near, comforting and guiding, but also knitting back your world together. We thank you for those signs. But also we thank you for this sign, 
the story that started at a party as a response to a conversation and became a story that was included in our gospels that has founded and grounded the church for 2,000 years now to remind us that our movement towards your kingdom starts with joy. And that all of the work that we do in the world, both internal work to become the people you imagine us to be and the work we do for peace and justice around us in our relationships, all of that work is grounded in celebration. Trusting that the world has a destination and that destination is your love and embrace, your kingdom that transforms everything. Might we trust in the renewal of all things, believing that you are already at work and we are part of that story. As we begin this movement toward Easter, help us to prepare our hearts well for the depth of Good Friday and the celebration of resurrection. In the strong name of the risen Christ we pray, amen.